This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a journalist, author, and podcast host. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired investigator with experience solving some of America's most notorious cold cases. Together, we host Buried Bones, a historical true crime podcast on the Exactly Right Network. Each week, we examine a different case from history and use our years of experience and 21st century forensics to bring new insights into these very old tragedies. Like the time the Sausage King of Chicago's wife went missing in 1897. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Follow Buried Bones wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It has been such a pleasure. What an honor. I never would have dreamed that we would have someone would allow us inside this house. Thank you. I love those bricks out there. Did you see the bricks he has out there? He's going to use The Mountain View Plantation Mansion isn't as glorious as it once was when the Clements lived here more than 150 years ago. Some of the home's bricks, once a deep red, are faded and chipped, though its four columns are still pretty impressive. The owner is hoping to renovate it to its previous dignified state, which would be wonderful because it is a beautiful home. He leads Desmond Kendrick and Wayne Witcher and me inside the parlor, which is now a dining room. The owner points out a slew of divots in the wall across from a set of windows. He says they are bullet holes from more than 100 years ago. That is amazing. So somebody was probably walking through here, a sharpshooter shot through one of those windows over there. I wonder who they were shooting at. (laughs) So this is the fireplace that was used in 1812, 1813, this fireplace right here. So Victoria came through here, James Clement came through here. Mm -hmm. And this gives me chills. No, my great-great-granddad played out. <laughs> this type of visit to James Clement's family home is extraordinary for a historian and a writer like me. I'm always hoping for some physical evidence of someone's past life, like a pair of eyeglasses or a self-portrait, so you can imagine what it's like for me to be inside the Clement family home. I wasn't so lucky with the Witchers. Most of their old land was sold off generations ago, and all of the homes are gone. And of course, Washington Dickinson's store is gone too. But back in February of 1860, Dickinson's store was the site of a massacre. Dozens of people crowded into the store, which had been converted into a makeshift courtroom, for the second set of depositions in the divorce case of Victoria Clement against James Clement. Witnesses were there to offer their observations about the couple's turbulent marriage. Five months earlier, the initial depositions had ended in gunfire when the tensions between James Clement and Buck Gilbert hit a new high. James was infuriated as Buck described his friendship with Victoria Clement as only platonic And the following day, Buck nursed only superficial wounds. But James Clement and his brother Johnston had more serious injuries. They had wounds dire enough to postpone the divorce proceedings for months. And then they actually moved the meeting closer to the Witchers and the Clements. During that time, both families took target practice, which seemed like a not-so-veiled threat. Both of their communities felt the tension. And now that the two families were finally meeting again, 
everyone hoped that the Witchers and the Clements would conclude this divorce peacefully. Wishful thinking. The night before the depositions, James Clement issued a series of pleas and threats to various people who had arrived. His brother Ralph had already interviewed witnesses from each side of the case, and now several men had gathered outside of Dickinson's store that night just casually talking. James eyed each person from a distance before walking along the porch toward a friend of the witcher's. James asked Silas W. Evans if he thought James had been guilty of all of the terrible things he was accused of. James also wondered if Silas thought that the witchers would hurt him because of Victoria's accusations. Silas answered that he wasn't sure, but if James were guilty, that the witchers ought to break his neck. Silas could hear shots in the distance, someone was once again taking target practice. Silas called out to his friend James Rice and firmly suggested that they both leave immediately. As Silas walked away, James called out to him and asked him to join him and his brothers for some shooting. Silas told James that he was going home, and as he began to walk off into the night, James called after him, "'Don't go. The fun hasn't commenced yet.'" Silas replied that he wasn't interested in any type of fun that James offered, particularly involving guns. James told him, don't be afraid. You won't be hurt. James Clement paced the porch and kept repeating, don't leave. The fun hasn't commenced yet. It seemed very menacing. Silas turned and snidely remarked, I've heard that the Clements are bad marksmen anyway. You shoot too low. James reminded him coldly that he had managed to hit Buck Gilbert. But by that time, Silas Evans and James Rice had disappeared into the darkness. Everyone at Dickinson's could see that James was tense that Friday night. He snapped at everyone, even family members. He couldn't stand up for very long because his wounds were still so painful. James's friend Jack Law stepped onto Dickinson's porch amid the other men. James seemed panicked even more than before. Vincent Oliver Witcher had spooked James. All of the Witchers did. Jack asked James to come with him, and they walked away from the crowd and down a dirt road. James put his arm around Jack as they trudged down the road, going nowhere in particular. James told his friend that he feared there would be another shootout, just like the one that happened last September in Sandy Level. Why do you make such remark as this? Jack wondered. They're preparing for something, replied James. Jack, they are going to kill me. Jack didn't believe it, but James told him that he saw a man hand a witcher two pistols. Jack replied to James, Jim, this is all humbuggery, and you be cool and deliberate and have no fighting. James replied, Jack, you have always given me good advice, and I will take it as I have always done, and I will not be the aggressor but the defender. And if I am shot at, I'll be damned if I don't shoot the man that shoots at me. Jack said, if all of them will act the way that you have promised to act, there will be no fighting. James nodded and the men parted ways into the night, but both left with their own worries about the next day. 
Sorting out fact from fiction in child custody battles is difficult for judges today. They listen to both sides and to both sides' witnesses, and then they have to make a decision. Judge Dimple Mahaltra says that judges have to learn about the nuances of these stories. There are always two sides. You know, I look at each case individually, obviously, and that's my job. But there are red flags. There are things that I see in cases that definitely let me know what the dynamic is in that relationship. They give me context. Luckily, we have law enforcement that has victim services that are educated in this field. They understand the dynamics. They, they know what to look for. They know the questions to ask. Judge Mahaltra says that she leans on law enforcement to give her information, and then she uses that information to come to her own conclusion. So when they respond to a scene, they're asking things about the history. So if there's a history of violence in the relationship, even if it's unreported, that's significant to me. If there's a history of strangulation, that's very significant because that increases that risk of lethality in that case tenfold. If there are weapons in the home, there are just a number of red flags. If there have been threats in the past, if if the person has expressed that they've been isolated from their friends and family, I do uh, understand well the dynamics. George Sampson was a friend of James Clement. He looked over at Sherwood Shelton, who was James's brother's best employee. Sherwood had testified months earlier in Sandy Level about the night that Victoria ran to his house, fleeing from James. Sherwood had said in his deposition that James arrived shortly after Victoria did, and he demanded to see her. Sherwood refused, and James threatened his life before leaving. It was all a lie, Sherwood told George Sampson. My deposition wasn't right. Sherwood told George that the witchers had taken him outside before he was supposed to be a witness. He said that they threatened him and pressured him to change his testimony to make James seem more threatening toward him that night. Sherwood was quiet and then whispered to George, They looked at me very cross at times and held their hands on their revolvers. He told George that he was sure that the witchers would kill him. I did not do Mr. Clement justice on that occasion because I was afraid of Vincent Witcher, said Sherwood sadly. But as the sun rose and witnesses gathered on the porch, there was optimism. James told people that perhaps the Witchers would behave. He had thought that they might try to fight the day before, but they hadn't. Perhaps that meant that this would be a better day. But it wouldn't be. Events that Saturday ran long, and after dinner, Vincent Oliver Witcher and his opposing counsel, Ralph Clement, sat opposite each other on either side of the large fireplace inside the main room of Dickinson's store. A friend of the Clements, Elizabeth Bennett, sat near the fireplace and started to give her deposition before the judges and the two families. Bennett's brother-in-law worked for Ralph, and they lived on his land. She had even ridden one of Ralph's horses to Dickinson's to give her deposition. She was almost like a member of the Clement family, and the Witchers had been very suspicious of her. What would she say about James and Victoria's relationship? Vincent Oliver Witcher asked for a dismissal until Monday, and then he objected to Bennett as a witness. Witcher demanded that Bennett be watched by an independent party. Ralph jumped up from his seat at his desk and replied that she wouldn't be influenced over the weekend by anyone, including the Clements. 
In fact, Ralph would be happy to place her in jail until the depositions could resume on Monday, just to appease the witchers. That's how important Elizabeth Bennett was. Surely she couldn't have been happy about that. Wayne Witcher says that Vincent Oliver was concerned that Ralph Clements would try to pressure the witness into lying on the stand if he had a chance to talk with her alone over the weekend. Ralph Clement, who was the attorney of James Clement, at that point said, whoever said that told a damned lie. Then Captain Witcher rose from his chair, put his hand in his bosom, and drew out a five-shooter. Ralph Clement was acting as his brother's attorney, and even though he had been arguing with Vincent Oliver Witcher over this witness, Ralph seemed caught off guard by Vincent Oliver's reaction to being called a liar. Vincent Oliver took a few steps back as another witcher raced toward Ralph Clement. Ralph sprang up from his seat at the writing desk. Now Vincent Oliver's grandson, Addison Witcher, grabbed Ralph Clement from behind. And then Addison Witcher, Vincent's grandson, grabbed Ralph Clement and yelled at his grandpa, Captain Witcher, don't shoot me, shoot the damned rascal. Because he was afraid his grandfather was not a good shot. I mean, think about it. You grab this guy, and your grandpa is pointing the pistol, and apparently maybe he thought he was going to shoot high or shoot left and was going to shoot Addison, so he said, shoot him, not me. Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher did shoot Ralph multiple times. The bullets whizzed over Elizabeth Bennett's head as she ducked down and slid under the writing desk where Ralph Clement had been sitting. Ralph grunted and blood splattered. He yelled to anyone around him, I am a dead man. They killed me for nothing. Addison Witcher screamed at his grandfather, shoot him, God damn him, shoot him. Vincent Oliver fired more shots. Ralph's body jerked and went limp in Addison Witcher's arms. When Addison determined that Ralph was dead, he let go of him before Ralph fell to the ground, slumping over the legs of the writing desk. But Ralph wasn't dead. He was moaning and in tremendous pain. Ralph lay very close to Elizabeth Bennett, who was terrified. She had seen the whole thing, though she was really only able to see Addison Witcher from the waist down as she hid nearby. Amid the chaos of the gunfire and the screaming and the smoke, James Clement spotted Vincent Oliver across the room, the man who had brought so much grief to his life. At least that's what James had always thought. James reached for his revolver in his pocket, aimed, and felt a pain in his arm. Vincent Oliver's son-in-law had been sitting nearby. He used his cane to hit James right as he fired. The bullet whizzed by Vincent Oliver, just missing him. His son-in-law had saved his life. Vincent Oliver returned fire, hitting James Clement in the head and the heart, killing him instantly. Someone, presumably a witcher, slit James's throat, and he fell where he stood as blood spilled onto the woodboards of the floor. Vincent Oliver's son-in-law had also hit him over the head with his cane before running out the door. Another grandson of Vincent Oliver was severely wounded in the shoulder. As people rushed out of the room, others rushed inside the room, hoping to see who had been shot. Everything was difficult to see as black smoke quickly filled the large counting room in the store. This was normally the place where Washington Dickinson would count his currency for the day. A witness spotted James Clement lying on the ground. He was clearly dead. The witness saw a witcher fire a pistol at James's body. The man didn't say which witcher, but it was likely Vincent Oliver. 
Ralph Clement was wailing underneath the writing desk. Three men rushed over, including a brother-in-law who was also an army colonel. They lifted Ralph onto the bed where James Clement had laid during the depositions. Colonel Madison Carter was married to Ralph's sister. He searched Ralph's body for fatal wounds. There were six bullet holes in his body, including one near his spine. Ralph was complaining. He said he had no intention of using his weapon. He wondered why all of this was happening to his family. It was incredible that he was even still alive at this point. Finally, the shooting had stopped and the smoke started to clear. And as it did, Ralph and James's brother, Johnston Clements, spotted Victoria's brother. Johnston reached into his breast pocket, pulled out a gun, and fired at John Archer Smith. The shot hit him in the shoulder. John Archer grabbed his shoulder with one hand, and with the other, he gripped a short Bowie knife. He rushed toward Johnston Clement and thrust the knife into his stomach, ripping open his bowels. He stabbed Johnson in the mouth, right at his whiskers. The knife hit his right jaw and then his ribs, his collarbone, and his breast. Johnston wailed and collapsed at John Archer's feet. He was literally gutted. And then Victoria's brother pulled out a pistol and fired three or four times, one shot hitting Johnston in the eye. Johnston Clement was now dead. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As the scene calmed, the witchers began to leave the counting room. Justice of the Peace Robert Mitchell had been overseeing the depositions. He ordered the men on the porch to hold the witchers, don't let them leave. Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher swung around and said, no need. He calmly stayed on the porch. Inside the counting room, Ralph Clement continued to weep. He requested a magistrate. He wanted to issue a dying declaration in writing. As a nearby witness scribbled on paper, Ralph said slowly, I never attempted to draw an arm. Addison Witcher catched me and held me around the waist and arms and told them to come and shoot me. A damned rascal. I was shot several times while in that fix and he held me until I fell. A number of pistols were fired at me then. Ralph stayed on the bed, bleeding from all over, for about two hours before he finally died. And that was it. There were no more deaths. The Witchers and the Clements fired dozens of shots that evening. And yet the three men who lay dead inside Dickinson's store were all Clements. Some of the Witchers were injured, but none fatally. Wayne Witcher read a short synopsis from an 1860 printing in a local paper. 
The bodies of the three brothers were riddled with bullets and horribly gashed with knives. In fact, William Clement, also known as Johnston Clement, was disemboweled. James Clement, this is Victoria's husband, had his throat slit from ear to ear. And Ralph Clement, the attorney for James Clement, he lived for nearly three hours despite his wounds after he had been shot. That must have been an incredibly painful death for Ralph Clement, the family attorney, and the most ambitious of the brothers. But all three brothers died horrible deaths in the middle of a chaotic, highly charged legal argument. It was a terrible thing. They were shot and cut up. And there's different different perspectives about what happened. Some reports say that it was the witchers that were the aggressors, but then there are other reports which say that it was the Clements who were the aggressors. I will say that I've read through almost 200 pages of depositions and testimony, and all of the witnesses unanimously say that the witchers instigated the violence. They certainly escaped with less trauma, and all of this seemingly over the custody of little Lelia Maud. But of course it was more than just that. There might have been infidelity. There definitely seemed to be abuse and manipulation. Jane Borden is Lelia Maud's great-great-granddaughter. She wondered aloud about something that I've often thought about. But it, because if it had been brewing for years, why would they have married her to him? I mean, I'm just assuming she didn't have full agency in her marriage choice, right? What's strange is the rumor that she had been engaged to Samuel Berger shortly before she married James. Yeah. So maybe there was some sort of deal between the Clements and the Witchers to unite the families. Right. They just seemed like a really, really bad match from the start. It could have been anything. Victoria claimed that James had been the abuser in their relationship, yet her family clearly had the upper hand during the massacre that happened inside Dickinson's store. Being victorious seemed to be in the Witcher blood. The Witcher men were strong and aggressive and trained in battle. A few years later, Addison Witcher led a Confederate cavalry of almost 500 men to Gettysburg in the Civil War. Addison would become a legend for his brutality during the war. Wayne Witcher reminds me that this is the same Addison Witcher who held Ralph Clement while his grandfather shot and killed the attorney. This is Vincent Addison Witcher, who has quite a reputation in the Civil War also. Very outrageous individual, actually. I asked Rand Witcher about Addison's reputation in their family because Addison seemed even more powerful than his grandfather, Vincent Oliver. Addison Witcher was your... Great-grandfather, yeah. Great-grandfather. A big man. Yeah? He was a big man, yeah. He was physically a big man? Yeah, I mean, he was a... No, he was a powerful person. All of this information really seems to sadden Vicki Borden. She's heard about this story her whole life. Lelia Maud was her great-grandmother, and Vicki never met her. But she was very important to Vicki's father and, of course, her own grandparents. They had talked about this for years. She and her two daughters have furniture and paintings and portraits of Victoria and Lelia Maud around their homes. But Vicki had never read all of the details until I sent her the legal documents. It's hard to read some of the stories, particularly about James's abuse of enslaved people on his property. Even though Lelia Maud was half Clement and half Witcher Smith, she never blamed either family. And Lelia Maud passed that belief down to her children and her grandchildren, which was probably the kind thing to do. I never heard my grandmother or my father ever assign blame 
to either side of the family. I never heard either one of them do that, ever. And as I said, the Clement family lived in Danville, where I grew up, and they were friends of my parents, and their daughter was a close friend of my sister's, and I dated their son for a while off and on, and we were good friends. Vicki jokes about a time when she watched a witcher and a Clement meet at a get-together. Never was there any mention of it, except one time, as I told you, they kind of looked at each other at a party and said, oh dear. But it didn't go any further after that. And my father never blamed anybody. And my grandmother never blamed anybody. It was a tragedy. And they didn't blame anybody for it. They saw that it was just something that blew up. Jane Borden says that her mother, Vicki, might not have blamed either family, but she does seem to connect with one side more than the other. We come, of course, from both sides because we're the descendants of their child. But my mother always was a witcher, associated herself with the witchers. And I think it's probably just because she's named Victoria. But that doesn't make sense. We're both. We're witchers and Clement. And because she associates so strongly with the witchers, I think there was this narrative of them being the ones in the right. And I don't really think anyone was in the right. It seems like everybody was unsavory. And I don't know, I just find that interesting. And I asked her, I was like, but mom, you're both. Like, you're also a Clement. Here's what's difficult for me. It's not hard to identify the villains in seasons one and two of Tenfold More Wicked. Edward Ruloff was a genius, and he was also a multiple murderer. Burke and Hare were greedy, craven serial killers. But season three was tougher for me because Howard Pearson's motives for killing his parents were complicated. And now, in this story, I'm not really sure who the villains are. James Clement was an abusive man, but the Witchers seemed to be particularly vicious when they killed the three Clement men. Jane Borden says it's all shocking to her. As an adult, you realize the weight of it. They killed each other over insults, essentially. I mean, imagine how far we've come. Only 160 years ago, people just killed each other over public insults. That's basically Twitter. If Twitter existed 160 years ago, I guess everybody would just be mass murderers. Yes, there are plenty of senseless killings today, some that even originated on Twitter. But murder over insults seemed to happen even more in the 19th century. And that might sound like a hardened view, but between slavery and poverty and the honor code, the line between murder and self-defense was blurred in the 1800s, particularly as America approached the Civil War. Men on both sides were preparing to kill on the battlefield and to die for their country, whether they wanted to or not. Even the gentry in the United States would duel out of honor. Wayne Witcher says that these types of confrontations happened very often. I don't necessarily view one family as evil over the other, except to say that when you put those type of people together in a courtroom and there is that much passion, child custody and honor, and they are used to defending themselves. And these are people who fought wars, recent wars, and they saw a lot of bloodshed. It wasn't an unusual thing for them to shoot someone or see someone shot. I just don't consider this that strange for the time in which they lived. Edith Witcher remembers something that her brother Homer told me about not holding people from the 1800s to the same standards we now have, because regardless of what we think is morally right or wrong, ethical decisions in the 19th century might seem peculiar today. 
I know Homer said that values aren't the same as they were 150 years ago. Maybe they're not, but good and evil is the same. I think that being able to accept that people's behavior might vary with the period in their lives or, you know, what's going on with them and helping them work through that or accepting them as they're working through it is important, whether it's your family or somebody else. And we've had a lot of that in our ancestry, apparently, people working through things. And I think some of them came over and were pretty successful and some weren't, but that's probably true in all families. Wesley Witcher says he has a strong connection to his family's history. Having familial land to visit gave him a sense of stability growing up that he really needed. And he has Vincent Oliver Witcher and the Witchers who came before him to thank for that. Well, my dad passed when I was very young. So one thing that I'm thankful for about this family is the inclusiveness. I was in Florida and and we'd go up to the farm. We call it the farm in Virginia quite regularly. Then when we moved to North Carolina, we'd go up there all the time. And it was just a great place to romp around like 400 acres and just, you know, have fun with all your cousins, my uncles, my aunts. It was just very welcoming. I had a base. I think that's the best way I could put it. But just like Vicki Borden, Wesley Witcher is disturbed by the details he's learned about the deaths of the Clements at Dickinson's store in 1860. And it might make him view his relatives in the 19th century a little differently now. I heard the story, you know, about the shootout and your side's always the good guys, your side's always the heroes. Well, I'm, <laughs> I'm questioning that now. <laughs> These guys are mean. I'm not proud of that. And I don't really want to know that. That was a side I didn't know. Clement relative Desmond Kendrick reminds me that these aren't just stories. This is family history, and it must be presented accurately, regardless of how horrible the details are. They were real people. They're not just something that happened. And they had feelings, and like my aunts told me, they had real feelings, real needs, and just like we do today. They were just in a different time frame. And I have to respect them because that's what I do. I study people like that. And that's my job, too, as a crime historian— And accuracy is crucial to this story. You could probably tell by now that facts in the history of a family are incredibly important to the relatives of both the Witchers and the Clements. After everyone had cleared out of Dickinson's store that Saturday in 1860, the bodies of James, Ralph, and Johnston Clement were removed. They were carried on a carriage to Mountain View Plantation, where their father, Dr. George Clement, lived. The three brothers would later be buried in the small family cemetery behind the mansion, just feet from where their parents would eventually lie. The witchers fretted, not because they had killed three men, but because they were unsure of what would happen next. Local historian Bill Garant says he's sure that the witchers received special treatment from the beginning, just because of who they were in the community. I may be wrong about this, but I'm pretty sure you didn't have the sheriff showing up and hauling them off to jail and putting them in jail waiting for their trial either. They just walked and waited. Bill's partially right. The witchers who had participated in murdering the three Clement brothers were released to their families as some decisions were being made. Wayne Witcher says that after the prosecutors heard from the witnesses, he ordered all five men to surrender. So almost three weeks after the killings, Vincent Oliver Witcher and his grandsons reported to the sheriff. Captain Vincent Oliver Witcher, his four grandsons, Vincent Addison Witcher, Samuel Swanson, John A. Witcher, and Vincent Oliver Smith were charged. 
five men were charged with murder, and a conviction would surely mean a death sentence for each one, five hangings at the gallows. The court documents say that Vincent Oliver and at least one grandson named John Anthony Smith were denied bail. They stayed in jail as their attorneys settled on a legal strategy. Being behind bars must have been humiliating for a powerful and influential politician like Vincent Oliver Witcher. I'm sure he never anticipated being censured for protecting his family. But the local prosecutor looked at the totality of the evidence from that shootout and concluded that what happened at Dickinson's store wasn't self-defense. It was murder. But the Witchers still had some hope because a panel of judges would decide their fate, not the Clements. There were five justices on the examining court in that area of Virginia in 1860 who were assigned to hear the prosecutor's case. The judges would read the charges, listen to the witnesses, and then decide if the Witchers should go on to trial for murder. I'm curious about what their strategy would be. And so is Bill Garant. All five Witchers pleaded not guilty. Bill says that the patriarch of the Witchers, Vincent Oliver, was intimidating to most people in the county. And he might have also intimidated his own family during those depositions. He was a very prickly, violent, quick-tempered, ill-tempered man. He may have bullied his grandsons and, and sons into feeling like, people. You know, feeling like they had to go along with it. It's like, if I don't disembowel this guy, what's granddad going to do to me? I think I you look at the subsequent cool. history and you don't see any reason to think that they would be squeamish about that sort of thing. You can't even imagine them walking out of there, blood dripping all off of them, saying, well, we took care of that problem. But maybe the five witchers would avoid a murder trial if Vincent Oliver leveraged his political power. Wayne Witcher says that state politicians had a lot of sway in the court system, especially in the 1800s, and Vincent Oliver was very well-connected. What is a local politician, what kind of power does somebody like that have in a rural area at the time in the 1860s, like Pennsylvania? You know how it works. Like today, I'm pretty sure that if you're a politician, you know the right people and you know the right strings to pull to make things happen. And I'm pretty sure that this individual, having been a member of a very important family in the foundation of that county, I'm pretty sure that he could pull the right strings to get things done. So here's another place where this story gets kind of tricky. The prosecutor had a very specific theory about this case, a theory that Jane Borden brings up to me. Did the witchers plan the massacre? Did they intend to kill James Clement at this hearing? Was James right to be wary of them, or was he just being paranoid that night on Dickinson's porch? They were held while they were shot. They were restrained. So do you think it was planned? Do you think that they, there was like a gameplay? Someone like called a play and they had practiced it? I don't know. It's suspicious that James Clement said that the witchers had been uncharacteristically calm in the days before. Hmm. So yeah, I would expect that they planned it. I assumed that it was the shootout that had happened a couple of days earlier. That at that point, the witchers were like, all right, let's make a plan. This, this ends now, something like that. And that was the crux of these upcoming proceedings with the panel of judges. The prosecutor accused the five witchers of premeditated murder. It was clearly planned. But the witchers had a different explanation for the violence. They were just defending themselves. And Wayne Witcher might agree. 
all of this evidence that you're bringing forward does seem to indicate to me that there was just cause for defending themselves, especially if you look at some of the reports which indicate that it wasn't Vincent Oliver who pulled the weapon, it was James Clement who pulled the weapon. So it does look to me like it was an issue of self-defense, at least depending on which account you read. Because, you know, you pull a gun, you get shot. And the examining court might feel the same way. It's true that the Clements were also armed. Three witchers were injured. Both families threatened each other and both families attacked one another. But was it murder or self-defense? As we talked about earlier, the consequences of the honor code often reached far past the two people involved in the duel. The families were also affected, and that also included Dr. George Clement, the Franklin County physician who never seemed to attract negative attention, felt that he had to defend himself and his children, particularly James. After the deaths of his three sons, Dr. Clement wrote a letter called To the Public. It read, I feel due to their memory and as an act of justice to their surviving friends to present in this form a full and impartial statement of the whole matter. Dr. Clement believed that had certain witnesses been able to testify at Dickinson's store, then they would have absolved James of all of these baseless charges. Wayne Witcher says that George Clement mourned the loss of his sons and the taint of allegations against his family. What I've heard is that Dr. George Clement pretty much spent the rest of his life in depression and he was very saddened at the loss of his sons. And I would be also, I can understand completely. And it's my understanding that he spent quite a bit of time trying to absolve James of the bad reputation that had come upon him. He spent quite a bit of time trying to cause the public to understand that his sons had been murdered at the hands of these uh, violent witcher men in that courtroom. Near the end of these stories, I usually search for something positive within the terrible circumstances that serve as the plot to a season. Vicki Borden says... She's not sure there's anything positive to this story. It's a woman who runs away with her child, comes back, runs away again. There's a court case. There's a huge fight in the courtroom. People are killed. James is killed. And then, bam, that's the end of it. I don't think anything good came out of it for anybody. But in 1860, perhaps there might be some justice for all of the Clement family of Virginia. Vincent Oliver Witcher and his four grandsons might go to trial for murdering James and Ralph and Johnston Clement. The Witchers were claiming self-defense. They said they were just protecting themselves because the Clements were armed too. They would soon argue before the justices that they were in the right to shoot and stab those men. Even if their deaths seemed brutal, it was absolutely self-defense. Now I'm wondering, was this a valid defense? Or maybe a better question is, will it work? On the final episode of this season of Tenfold War Wicked on Exactly Right. I was kind of ashamed of it. In a, in a respect. I mean, I would still talk about it, but I had a shame on it because of the way it happened. And then I got thinking about it when I was old enough to understand, why are you ashamed of this? This happened. So you don't own any of the old property Oh, anymore. no, no. Nobody does. No witchers. No, no, no. Witchers no. Do. 
No. They own all that land around here, and then after that shooting, yeah. that one event changed yeah. it so yeah. much. If you look back through the family histories, it's some of the people you want to boast about, but then there are also some you just as soon not claim publicly. I think the perversity of mankind, no one is all good or evil. My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold War Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold War Media production. Producers Jason Whaling, Alexis Amorosi, and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical true crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmoremedia.com. Subscribe now on Amazon Music, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.